back to the beginning of the Torah in Bereshus and Genesis and what what it tells us about the creation of man and woman. First of all, we're told that God created a creature called Adam, a human being who was both male and female. And then at some point, God put man or Adam to sleep and he took a part, a rib, something, and made a woman. Obviously, God didn't correct his plan or adjust his plan when he decided to make a woman, to separate the male and female so that they'd be two people rather than one. That was the process. Those were the steps, the stages in which this had to happen. First, male and female had to be one person, one being, and then they had to be separated. Basically, so that when they get back together again, they are one whole and not two separate people living together. Since the male and the female originally were one being, therefore in marriage, male and female once again become one being. And that's why God said to them that they be monogamous, that man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Because they were once one flesh and therefore they're capable of regaining that oneness. Had they been created separate beings to begin with, oneness would be impossible. You can't add to creation what isn't already there. Another thing is that man was created and then woman. Although man was male and female, man today is also male and female, a woman today is also male and female, yet the first creation was a man with a female part with a female dimension. And then God created a female who also had a male dimension. So the man was created first. And after he was created, God said, everything is wonderful. It's perfect. God saw all that he had made and it was good. And creation was finished. A few verses later, God says, it is not good that man alone exists, and I will make him a helpmate. And here again, we can't accept the possible explanation that God had an oversight and that he thought everything was good, but then he realized, no, he hadn't created a woman yet. He better, I'll never hear the end of it if he doesn't. So he decided to, to correct it and make, and make a woman. Here the idea is that as part of creation, as part of a physical universe, a four-dimensional planet, there are certain ingredients that were necessary for whatever reason. We'll never know. Why God decided to create a world that has atoms and trees and bones and stones and all that this is, this is what, in God's mind, the physical universe consists of. And one of the ingredients of a physical world is a human being, a male human being. Once the male human being was created, it was true that creation was complete 
and it was good. In other words, all the ingredients that creation called for were already there. Creation needed nothing more. So when God looked at all that he had made, meaning when God looked at his creation, it was good. It was perfect. It needed nothing else. A few verses later, when God says, it is not good that man alone exists, he wasn't talking about the needs of creation. He wasn't talking about what a physical universe needs in order to be good. That, we already know, was good. When God said it is not good, he was talking about the next stage in his plan. His plan was that first he will create a universe with everything that a universe needs to be a universe. And then he will move that universe through commandments and through godliness and holiness and goodness to a state of holiness that will make this created universe a dwelling place for him. Having created the universe, and it was good, now God moved on to the second part of the plan. Now, how do we get this world, this created universe, to become godly? And here God said, for this part of the plan, man alone is not good. Not he is not good alone. It will not be good if he is alone. And the reason for that is that man, the masculine attribute, the masculine personality, is basically a process. The world was created as a finite being, a finite creation, that needs to become receptive to an infinite God, which means that it is far from complete. It is a step in a process towards a certain goal. Everything in creation, the physical objects, the physical stuff, the stuff we use to do mitzvahs with, as, for example, the parchment, the leather that we use to write the Torah on or to make the mezuzah out of or the tefillin, the wheat that we use to make the matzah for Pesach, the wax that we use to make the candles for Shabbos. All these physical objects are in a process. They were created in a state of finite godlessness, and the progress is towards a more infinite godliness until when Mashiach comes, the world will become one with God and thereby gain eternity. Man is also that way. A mortal creature, a finite creature, with natural human weaknesses, with an evil inclination, with a tendency towards rebellion and towards sin and so on. And that is the first step in a, prog in a process. From there, through commandments, man will grow to be a mensch. And he will become receptive to godliness, he will attain eternity, he will attain holiness, and become a partner with God. But he's in the process. Even the idea of circumcision. When a little boy is born, created by God's miraculous process of creation and reproduction and so on, and yet something is not quite right, 
and there needs to be a process. There needs to be some correction made to begin the steps, to begin the growth from the created state to something greater, higher, better, and so on. In other words, there's a dissatisfaction, there's a feeling of incompleteness, there's a feeling of purpose and mission that man has that comes from the fact that he was not created as a finished product. And so we run around with this sense of urgency. What am I meant to become? Am I becoming it? Have I attained it? When will I attain it? And here we get all those questions about what happens after life and what happens if you don't behave and what happens if you sin and is there a heaven and is there a hell? All of these questions come from this urgency or this feeling of incompleteness that we feel. And so it is the nature of man, of the masculine, to seek out trouble spots in the world and undertake to fix it process. That's why in Kabbalah and other places, the masculine is associated with time. Time is a process. Things are happening. There's past, there's present, there's future, things are changing. So time is masculine. That's why there are 14 mitzvahs in the Torah that men are obligated to perform and women are exempt of. What do these 14 mitzvahs have in common? These 14 commandments? They're all time-oriented. Because time is masculine. But God said, this process, this growth, this seeking out the evils in the world and the darkness in the world and correcting it, which we now call the aggressive nature of man, the masculine, is not going to guarantee me a holy world. It's not going to guarantee that the process will eventually reach the desired goal. So it is not good. It, the plan, is not good with man alone. You can't just create an incomplete thing and hope that it will become complete. Where will it get the momentum? Where will it get the motivation? Where will it get the clarity of vision? Somebody wants to use this example. Imagine a group of scientists are sitting around and they're trying to, to plan a trip to the nearest star. And they're working out all the possible problems. Obviously, to get to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, I think it is, will take about 800 light years. Who are you going to send? <laughs> you have to send a community. You have to build a little miniature planet and send it up there. And the fourth generation, fifth generation, will arrive at the star. They'll do whatever it is you want them to do there. And then the eighth or ninth generation will come back to Earth and tell us what they saw. So if you're creating this little planet, one of the problems is cleanliness, the environment. What are they going to do with their garbage? So somebody says, well, just throw it overboard. 
And the other scientist says, yeah, but you know what happens when you've got this body, this mass in outer space traveling at a certain speed, and you throw things overboard, it'll just follow. Because it'll create its own gravity, and you'll have this whole trail of garbage clinging to you. So they had to get around that problem. And then they had other technical scientific problems. But then one guy got up and he said, wait a minute, I've got the biggest problem of them all. The fourth generation born on this little planet headed for Alpha Centauri. This great-grandchild of the original astronaut, he's going to wake up one morning and say, who says we're headed for a star? What do you mean we got to finish this trip and go back to Earth? Have you ever seen Earth? There's probably no life on Earth. How is he going to believe, and why should he believe? What his grandfather told him, that there's another planet and there are millions of people on that planet, sounds like a fairy tale. And that the only reason that they are on this little planet flying through space is because they're going to a star and they're going to go research things and they come back. Baba Mises. And then when you get down to the details, there's a certain room nobody's allowed to go into, the control room. You have to be the high priest to go in there. This sounds hokey. So they open up the doors and say, no, everybody can go in. No problem. And they've got this panel with buttons. Except that button you don't touch. What is this? Come on, grow up. So how are we going to guarantee that four, eight, ten generations later, the people are going to complete the mission and not turn around and say, wait a minute. We are the only living creatures in the whole universe. And we're headed nowhere. This is just it. And you make the best of it. And that's more or less what God was saying when he said it's not good that man alone exists. Because one day he's going to wake up and say, forget the process. The world is fine the way it is. Leave it alone. No more change, no more growth, no more, that's it. So God says, in that problem, I will create him a helpmate. And he created a woman. By the very nature of the creation of a woman, we know that, God, that to some degree, and in, in a manner of speaking, when God created man, it was because creation needed it. God doesn't have any special relationship with stones with trees, but it's part of creation. For some reason, a world without trees is not a finished world. A world without a man is not a finished world. So it's almost as if it's not that God wanted to create a man. God wanted to create a world. And in the world, you've got to have a man. You have to have the inorganic, the vegetable, the animal, and the human. So you create a human. And that's it. Now you've got a world. But when God created a woman, it wasn't because creation needed it. It was because he needed it for his own purposes, for his wishes. So right away, we have this distinction between male and female. Male was created as a means to an end. Female was created as an end in itself. Or in different words. God puts a certain amount of godliness in the man, which he has to develop and use and process. And God puts a certain godliness in a woman, 
which doesn't need to be processed, doesn't need to be changed, doesn't need to be, to be struggled with. It needs to be preserved, nurtured, and shared because it is already what God wants. That's why when Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, God said to them, I place you in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. What are these two projects here? To work it and to keep it. To guard it and to, and to work it. Working it obviously means changing. You weed the weeds. You get rid of the bad growth. You fight off the diseases, the bow weevils. And keeping it means that you protect what is good, you protect what is already healthy, and you make sure that it is nurtured and so on. And that, again, is the male and the female. Now, again, we, we generally refer to male and female as passive and aggressive. And what, that, what we mean by that is that change is aggressive. Def defending, maintaining, nurturing is passive. It may take more work and more strength and more offensive and aggressive behavior to protect what you have, but it's not called aggressive. That's called passive. Aggressive means that you want something you don't yet have and you go out to get it. That's called aggressive, acquisitive. You're going to acquire something. But no matter how intensely you defend what you have, that's called passive. Because what are you doing? You're merely maintaining what you have. So the lioness who protects her cubs more ferociously than the lion is being passive. Because she's not out to take anything from anybody else. She's merely protecting her own. So when we say male, female, passive, aggressive, we don't mean that the woman is not strong or intense in what she does. It means that the female trait is to preserve, sometimes intensely, ferociously, that which is already holy and good. That's why a child always belongs to a mother. If the mother is Jewish, the child is Jewish. If the mother is not Jewish, the child is not Jewish. Because the child is God's gift. This is the holiness that God gives us. It is already innocent. It is already good. Of course, it can become corrupt. But this is a divine gift. And a divine gift is given to the place of holiness, not to a process. So the woman is the home. The woman is the mother. The woman is the child. And therefore, the child belongs to her. The father is obligated to the child, is concerned for the child, as he is for the family. He's the provider, he's the protector, but he's not the home. He is the process. In different words, the masculine aspect of the world is that part of the world which God wants changed, fixed, improved. The female part of the world is that part of the world which God created holy, and wants it maintained. It follows now, maybe you're thinking along these lines already, it follows now that the six days of the week are masculine. But Shabbos is a, day, is a holy day. It's already holy. 
therefore it is feminine. So how do we refer to Shabbos on the Friday night prayers? The queen. The Shabbos queen. Because it's the feminine. We don't have to make Shabbos holy. It already is. But we do have to bring some holiness to the weekdays. So therefore it is the masculine. A woman in the, in the traditional prayer book makes a blessing every morning thanking God for having created her as his will. A man does not make that blessing. Because a man can't say, thank you for making me as you will. Because we are not as God wills. We're in the process. We're working at it. We're getting there. We're trying. But a woman is as God wants her, and therefore she can make that blessing. Throughout history, when the process that the men are on gets a little sidetracked and we get a little bit fablungent and a little bit assimilated and confused as to what our direction is and so on, like those guys on the planet who are not sure why they're there, where they're going, whether they're going, what keeps the, the, the godliness of the world stable, what keeps us on track is the woman. In the, in the times of Egypt, when men were confused by the idols of Egypt and they were Egyptianized and so on, so many of them even refused to leave. When it came time to leave, they were comfortable. They were Egyptians first and Jews second. It was the women who made it possible for God to take his people out of Egypt because the women were not confused. In the times of Hanukkah, the same thing happened. Hellenism was rampant. Everybody was caught up in this fad of Hellenism, of Greek gods and the worship of the body and so on. But the women wouldn't. And so when the Maccabees came along and rededicated the, the temple, who was there? Who led the move back to Judaism? The women. When the Jews in the desert made the golden calf, who made the golden calf? The men. The women refused. A few days later, when God said to build a sanctuary to make up for the golden calf, where did the money come from? Where did the gold come from? The women. Because they didn't give their gold to the calf. Within each of us, there is that part that needs to be fixed. There is the discomfort with our own incompleteness, with our own unholiness, that needs to be struggled with, agonized over, corrected. And then there's that part which is already good. There is the desire to do good. There are the good things that come naturally. For different people, it's a different thing. For some people, giving charity just comes naturally. It's a holy thing to do, and it comes without a struggle. For another person, that's a difficult mitzvah. But keeping kosher is very easy. It, it fits. It feels right. It comes natural. So one person will keep kosher without too much hesitation. The other person will give charity without too much hesitation. So there's a certain goodness that's already there. It doesn't receive a lot of attention because it doesn't make a lot of noise. And that's why in the world, when it is going through its process... 
when it's dark and unholy, all the attention is on the masculine. When there are many dragons to slay, it's the man who gets all the attention because he's the dragon slayer. Why are you slaying the dragon? Whom are you protecting? Who are you defending? Always the princess, the feminine. That which is already holy. You go to war for what purpose? To defend the people who don't go to war. Well, then what are they doing? They're nurturing what is holy and important and precious, so on. So if we want to think of it in its proper perspective, we, we make a mistake in our society. Doctors are important, policemen are important, politicians are important, teachers are important, right? All of this. But that's only superficial. Of course, the teacher gets more attention. The policeman gets more attention. The doctor gets more attention. But why do we need doctors, teachers, and policemen? For whose benefit? They are, after all, public servants. They serve. They are not the leaders. They are not the end. They are the means. And what is the end? Why is a doctor important? Because a layman has a stomachache. If nobody ever had a stomachache, no doctors. Why do we need soldiers, generals, leaders to protect the people who are neither generals, nor soldiers, nor leaders? So who really is important? That's why a nation, a country, where everybody goes to war is a ridiculous notion. It's, un it's nonsense. Who are you defending? What are you defending? What are you protecting? You're just playing games. You're a warmongering people. But if you go to war to protect those who don't, that makes sense. Because those who don't deserve to be protected. Because they're home, they're bringing up their kids, they're maintaining the tradition, they're living up to God's expectations, and they need to be protected. So you go to war. But if nobody's doing anything good, what are you fighting for? It's like the pursuit of happiness. If it becomes an end in itself, it doesn't make any sense. If you're doing something important and you're doing something vital and something you respect and you have to do it with joy, you can't be miserable about it. So happiness becomes an important ingredient. But the pursuit of happiness, towards what end? See, that's a masculine thing without any feminine dimension to it at all. One other idea of male and female, then we'll talk about it a little bit. There is kindness and there is severity. Now you're going to assume that the woman is kindness and the man is severity. But what would Kabbalah be if it didn't have some surprises, right? Kabbalistically, man is kindness and woman is severity. Man is the right side, woman is the left side. The left side is severity, the right side is kindness. And why is that? Two things. First of all, kindness, by its very nature, is indiscriminate. Kindness means everybody gets. I'm open to everything. 
I welcome everybody and I give everybody. Severity means that I am judging and weighing and separating the deserving from the undeserving, the appropriate from the inappropriate, mine from not mine. Kindness is indiscriminate. Severity is discriminating. A woman is more discriminating than a man by nature. That's why a woman may not be a judge in Jewish law. Why? Because in her discriminating, intuitive ability, she knows who is lying before she asks any questions. In other words, before she can go through the process of the judgment and of the cross-examination of witnesses and so on, she already knows who's telling the truth and who's not. And that disqualifies her. In the same way that it disqualifies a prophet. A prophet may not be a judge because he knows who's right and who's wrong without due process. He knows it miraculously, mystically, psychically, and therefore he cannot be a judge. Because that doesn't give the victim, that doesn't give the guilty party a chance. And the whole idea of due process is that everybody gets a chance. That's why in the court of 71 judges, if all 71 judges find a person guilty, you start the process all over again, something is wrong. It can't be that not a single one of these wise men can find an argument in favor of the accused. You're not a court if everybody agrees that you're guilty. So a prophet can't be a judge, a woman can't be a judge, and if everybody agrees something is wrong because there's no due process. So this discriminating ability, we find that Reb Mayer, Rabbi Mayer, when people would come to him with a dispute, with a court case, he would have his wife listen to the, to the arguments and then ask for a, a recess. Then he'd go ask his wife, who's telling the truth? Who's lying? Who's the criminal here? And she would tell him. And then he would sit down and work it out legally based on her, on her intuition. So this discriminating talent, the ability to separate the good from the bad, the right from the wrong, which is also bi biologically the difference between man and woman, the creation of a child, in the man, the child is indiscriminate. All the parts look alike. There's no distinction from one part to another. It's only in the mother that the feet become feet, the hands become hands, a nose becomes a nose, a mouth becomes a mouth discriminating. Another thing about kindness and severity. Kindness flows downwards like water. The one who has gives the one who doesn't have. The teacher teaches the student. The adult takes care of the child. It's a downward process mostly. Severity is like fire. It's an upward process. Fire rises. Water descends. The idea of descending or rising is that when you descend, you're not tearing yourself away from where you were in order to get to where you're going. It's a gradual, pleasant process. You move 
gracefully and slowly and peacefully from where you are to where you're going. And you basically maintain yourself. You are the same before and after. Fire, in order to rise, has to tear itself away from the wick, separate itself from its place, and rise and extinguish itself in the process. That's the difference between the tzaddik, the person who is without evil, who serves God without a great struggle, versus the person who has sinned but comes back to godliness. The difference between the tzaddik and tshuva. There's a, there's a description of uh, when Moses saw the burning bush. From a distance, he sees this bush burning, and there's something strange about it. So he says, and the Torah quotes him, I will remove myself and see what is going on. So Rashi says, what, what, what does that mean? What's he removing himself? So Rashi says, I will leave this place in order to go to that place in order to see what's going on. Asura Mikan, I will remove myself from here. And I will get closer to there. What, what does that mean? That's the difference between water and fire. Water doesn't leave here to get there, but fire leaves where it is in order to get to where it's going. So at that moment, Moshe experienced the experience of tshuva, of repentance. Because repentance means I am no longer where I was. I sever my ties with that. I am now someplace else. Possibly, this is why originally in the, in the Torah, a man was allowed to have two wives, but a woman could only have one husband. Water can flow into many channels at the same time without compromising itself. But fire can't be in two places at the same time. You can descend in many places. You can only rise in one. So severity means rising. And why is rising severe? Because in order to rise, you must sever your ties to the lower level. If you maintain a tie to the lower level, you haven't really risen at all. And so in a woman, one relationship precludes another. Because in the relationship, she is the fire, she is the gavura, the severity in the relationship, and severity can only be at one place at a time. That's why to the woman, the relationship is always more crucial, more essential than to the man. When a relationship goes bad, when God forbid a marriage falls apart, the woman is always more devastated than the man. The moral of the story is that as we move closer to Mashiach, there are fewer dragons to slay. There is less and less need to descend, to lower ourselves into those things that are beneath us 
in order to fix them. And so the masculine trait becomes less and less dominant. We don't need it. When there are no wars to fight, what happens is that election day comes around and two people are running for office and you don't care who gets in because what's the difference? There are no wars to fight. So who should sit in the White House and smile? Whoever. We've got a real crisis. This is a campaign with no issues. Oh, in Israel, now there's a campaign. Because every candidate says, if you don't vote for me, you're condemning this country to annihilation. God forbid. So every party claims to be essential for the very survival of the country in the next 15 years. In America, what? What's your problem? So you got two candidates, three candidates. What are they saying? What's the difference? A non-issue campaign. Because they're no, they're no dragons. So who is the knight in shiny armor? Who cares? They're no dragons. So the masculine trait becomes less and less important. And what happens is that the feminine trait becomes more and more dominant. What do you do with the good things in life? With the holy things? With the godly things? Who's taking care of that? Who knows how to take care of that? We were saying before, masculine is, time is masculine, space is feminine. Time makes us crazy. When we have free time, we get in trouble. People are laid off and there's unemployment, crime shoots up. Suicides shoot up. Because free time, we go crazy. Space never makes us crazy. You have a place of your own, it doesn't make you crazy. On the contrary, that's comfortable, that's nice, that's secure. So who's taking care of it? Who's taking care of the godly places, the godly spaces of the world? Not the men, the women. And as we get closer to Mashiach, the world becomes more and more of a godly place. Less and less dragons to slay. The, the feminine trait, even within man, has to become the more dominant one. So today, we have to seek out that which has always been godly, it's always been good, it's always been there. It's not artificial, it's not plastic, it's not a response to a problem. It is the holiness that has always been holy, the goodness that has always been good. That's the only job left to nurture that, and that's the feminine. And so men are beginning to feel a little bit jealous of women. Because when you have a lot of free time, men go crazy and women seem to be able to handle it. I wonder why. What are you so happy about? There are no dragons, there are no wars, there's nothing to do. What are you so happy about? How come you're content? So we begin to wonder, what makes women content? On the other hand, ironically, there's a movement where women want to become more like men. Confusion. But it'll all straighten out. It'll all find its place because as Mashiach comes, the wife becomes the crown of her husband. That's the prediction. That's the prophecy. 
So smart men don't wait for their wives to tell them how to be. They develop the feminine trait within themselves so that when Mashiach comes, we will all be devoted to only one thing, and that is the pleasure and the satisfaction that comes from nurturing and savoring that which has always been godly, that godliness which God put into creation when he said, I will make you a helpmate. God didn't put us in a world that is purely dark, purely unholy, purely evil, and we're supposed to struggle with all of this on our own. He placed the good stuff in here as well. Only it was hidden for 5,000 and some years. Now that it's coming to the surface, let's enjoy it. Let's notice what is good and holy and savor it, wallow in it. Okay, what, um, what have you got in your mind? What does a male Some of the dragons secrets play are created. Uh, and just staying married or staying in space and holding time within them. What does that mean? That's a very good point. That's not a question, that's an answer. The way the way to solve most of society's problems is by giving more attention, more prominence, more significance to marriage, to family. Because that's the, the stability of a society. That's the good part. That part doesn't need to be justified. That part doesn't need to be, to be sold. Everybody knows that's good. That's holy. That's always been holy. That's always been good. And as soon as we start forgetting that, as soon as we put less emphasis on family and on the holiness of it and so on, immediately society starts having problems. So, what about these lesbian women? People who make choices other than traditional heterosexual marriages, uh, the jury is still out on that. Um, is it a choice or is it not a choice? I'm not even sure that that's, you know, is it a choice? Is it a voluntary decision? Or is it simply a condition that you can't argue with? If it's a voluntary choice, then we can debate it. If it's a condition, then there's no debate. What are you going to argue? If that's the way a person is, you can't argue it. We could say you can be born with a tendency towards, towards uh, a gay relationship or gay uh, feelings and so on. You can be born with other feelings and other tendencies that you outgrow or that you find a cure for or that you work your way out of. So even if you're born that way, maybe there's a way of working out of it, growing out of it. But the, the, the jury is certainly still out on what's the outcome? What's the outcome? Can you have a gay community? We don't know yet. Is that going to lead to oneness? We don't know yet. 
it's an experiment, and it's a little bit of a dangerous experiment. Yeah. I, I just don't know why a woman's weight has to be so big. Um, I think that women can use their gifts in their home and also go out to work and be opportunity for work their gifts as well. And I guess what I'm hearing them do is better of that's under is the only place for the woman the home? And why can't she go out and bring her blessings to the, to the work world and be a woman? Right. You're right. The home is not the only place where a woman can be a woman. And as we were saying before, the home is not the only place that needs to be a home. The whole world needs to become more like a home. If a woman goes out to work, it should be different than when a man goes out to work. The man goes out to work because it is not his home. It's a foreign place. It's another place. And he's going there to contribute whatever he can to that place. When a woman goes out to work, it should be making the workplace more like a home. I don't mean necessarily taking the baby with you. I mean emotionally, uh, morally, ethically. It should become more like a home. In other words, a woman should be a woman wherever she goes. So that even if a woman does go to work, it's like a woman, not like a man. Uh, if a man goes to work, it's because he wants to do something out there in the world. If a woman goes to work, it should be because her family, her society, her community needs it. Let me, let me go out on a limb on this a little bit. What has happened to women in the last 30 years? There's been a revolution, right? I don't think so. Women, by nature, do not make revolutions. A woman nurtures. What happened really, I think, is that in Europe, the family was the center of life for men and women, for husband and wife. Now, it's true that the man was out of the house for more hours than men are away from the home today because they worked harder. Sometimes they were gone for weeks just looking for a loaf of bread. And yet, their center was the home. So that when a husband left the house in the morning and waved goodbye to his wife and kids, they knew where he was going and they knew why he was going. Because this is my father, and he's going out to bring me food. This is my husband, and he's going out to provide for his family. And we wished him well, and we blessed him, and we loved him, and we depended on him, and it was wonderful. And he went to work, not wanting to schlep the water from the river to the city, not wanting to chop wood, not wanting to skin animals for a living. He didn't want to do any of this. But what don't you do for your family? So he went. And he worked and couldn't wait to come home. Then came the Industrial Revolution. I think that's what caused it. We came to America. And all of a sudden, not the women changed. Men changed. Life changed. All of a sudden, when the husband left the house in the morning, it wasn't for the family. It was for the job, for the career. So much so that after 10, 15 years of this, 
not only wasn't he centered on the home, and when he left the home, it was out and away from the home, into something else. But even when he came back home, he brought his homework with him. He brought his office with him. He brought his career with him. So that when he came back home, he didn't want to say hello to the kids. He wanted you to make sure that the kids were asleep so that he wouldn't be disturbed because the family was getting in the way of his career. A total about-face. So wives said, well, this can't go on very much longer. We'll uh, let it peter out by itself, and they'll wake up, and they'll realize, and they'll come home. It didn't happen. So how long can you wait? So you wait 10 years. You wait 20 years. You wait 40 years. After 40 years of non-existent husbands, of absentee fathers, women said, you know what? We're going to work. Not we want to go to work, not we need to go to work, but you got to get a taste of your own medicine. You want me to run a family without a husband? You try running a family without a wife. It's not that women decided they don't want to nurture, they don't want to be home, they don't want to be mothers. Of course they want to be. But how can you do that alone? So unless the husbands come home, forget it. You have a career, I'll have a career. You want a family? I'll, I'll join you. I'll be a family with you. But you don't want a family, so what am I supposed to do? So I guess in a roundabout way, after all the dust settles and the screaming and the shouting and the equal rights and the whole business, really what we're saying is, we got to go home. We got to come home. We have to come home, man and woman. Nobody really wants to be out there. The, the glamour has worn off for the men. It's wearing thin. It's frustrating. It's, it's destructive. It eats up your ulcers and your kishkas. And your, I mean, it's, it's not a way to live. So now we're saying, why don't we go home? Sure, you, want, you have to go out to work, go out to work. But don't turn that into an escape from the home. On the contrary, if you go out to work, you extend your home. Not only do you nurture your kids in the house, you nurture them even when they're away in school. You go out to earn some money to buy them what they need. More nurturing, not more escaping. For men and for women. Yeah. Um, kind of copyright just before I have what I mean by that is people like uh, Socrates and and Lao Tzu came up with the first positive same kind of ideas we're talking about back in terms of male and female. And what kind of connection does the Torah and its truths have to their realization of, of what you're just saying? And if it doesn't have any connection, it could people have come up with the same idea of the Torah before Torah was even brought down here. It's very possible. Torah's copyright is not necessarily on analysis of the nature of creation. People can come up with that and have come up with that before the Torah. Torah's copyright is an expression of God's will. And if you have the patience for another minute, there's a beautiful example of that. You know the dream that Pharaoh had that Joseph interpreted for him? Well, we're told 
that Pharaoh invited all the wise men of the country to interpret his dream, and nobody could. So that when Joseph interpreted the dream, he was a real hero. So the Rebbe not long ago said, I don't understand. All the wise men of Egypt who could build pyramids and embalm bodies to keep them intact for 2,000 years couldn't figure out this dream? What was the dream? First he saw seven healthy cows. Then he saw seven very... Uh, scrawny. <laughs> and the scrawny cows swallowed up the seven healthy cows, and that was one dream. Then he had another dream. There were seven healthy stalks of wheat. And then there were seven beaten stalks of wheat. The seven beaten stalks of wheat swallowed up the seven healthy stalks. Now, a kid in school, that Rebbe said, could figure out that a cow means meat and wheat means bread. Put them together, you got food. <laughs> you don't have to be a genius to work this out. Now, the scrawny cows swallow up the fat cows, which means that you're going to have what to eat, but then you're not going to have what to eat. For this, he became a hero. This was the brilliance of Joseph. And nobody else in the kingdom could figure this out. Actually, we're told that one of the, uh, one of the uh, wise men of Egypt interpreted the dream as Pharaoh will have seven daughters. You can imagine why he didn't like that interpretation. Yeah, <laughs> they have seven daughters and they're going to die and he's going to bury them. And, and he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't impressed. But Joseph comes along and says, no, it means meat. He said, ah, brilliant. What, what, is, what is the wisdom here? So the Rebbe explained, Joseph, Joseph's wisdom was not that he said that cows mean meat and that wheat means bread. His wisdom was that God was trying to tell Pharaoh to put aside some food for those seven bad years. That nobody else had suggested. Everybody came and interpreted the dream brilliantly. They were brilliant people. But in none of them, in none of those interpretations, was there a message. You're going to have seven daughters, they're going to die. Okay, now what? So what should I do? Start mourning now? Don't have daughters? Well, what should I do? What are you telling me? The thing that was so brilliant, that moved Pharaoh so deeply, was that Joseph said, God is trying to tell you something in this dream so that you'll know what to do. He said, God, that's brilliant. That's unique. Nobody else said that. There were Bible critics. There were Bible critics. It's an extinct species now. There used to be Bible critics. And one of the things that they came up with was that the Bible was not divine. God did not reveal it at Sinai. And the proof is because in ancient myths found in Scandinavia and other places, there is a story about a flood that covered the whole world. So there you go. It predates the Torah. So the Torah is not divine. God didn't give it. Everybody knew about the flood long before the Torah was given. Can you imagine? See, this was a cerebral argument. <laughs> and it makes no sense at all. Of course, everybody knew about the flood before the Torah was given. The flood happened before the Torah was given. And wouldn't we be suspicious if only Jews knew about it? The whole world got wet, but only we remember. I mean, something would be, 
Something would be suspicious about that. Of course, everybody in every ancient society knows that there was a flood because they all got wet. They're all descendants of, of, of Noah. So, of course, they're going to know. In that case, if everybody knew about the flood because everybody was a descendant of Noah, then why does the Torah tell us the story? Then why does God record it for us? And particularly at the time that he recorded it, it was only four generations later. So you're coming to the great-grandchildren, telling them what happened to their great-grandfather. They all knew that. But again, the unique thing of Torah is not that Torah gives you historical events that nobody else knows. Or facts of science that nobody else knows. That's not what Torah is all about. When God comes and tells us the story of the flood, he tells us the one thing that we could not know. And that nobody knows until he says so. And that is, why did I bring the flood? That we couldn't know from a myth. That we have to know from after the Torah was given, not from before. Before the Torah was given, people felt and believed that this is the nature of the world. That every thousand years, the world submerges. And that's why they built the Tower of Babel, because they wanted to go to the moon where it's drier. They were looking for dry land. Because they were certain that every thousand years the world gets wiped out. They didn't know that God did it on purpose for a reason because he was in a bad mood, he was angry. Oh, that we can only know if God tells us. So the uniqueness of Torah is not what it says about male and female, but what it tells us to do about it. That the man therefore has 613 mitzvahs, the woman has 14 mitzvahs less. That's Torah's unique, uniqueness of Torah. Um, this is a unique event, by the way. And even if, um, even if the conversation and the topic and the discussion and the talk is not all it's cranked up to be, the very fact that we get together like this is very, very special. People from all sorts of backgrounds, doesn't matter, we all get together for a common reason. We're looking for some truth. And we're not looking on mountaintops or the bottom of oceans. We're looking where we can find truths in, in the revelation, in what God says to us. And just getting together for that reason already earns us the merit that Mashiach should come and tell us and teach us everything we need to know. Thanks for coming.